I've got another bonus episode for you today. This is a crossover with Outside Ourselves with Kelsey Clembera. She and I connected before actually meeting in person at the Mockingbird conference. I did bring you a crossover episode with uh, Talkingbird. Anyway, Kelsey and I met in person and then were able to record this episode together for her great podcast, Outside Ourselves, Extranos, if you want to say it in Latin, but uh, it's a way of exploring matters of faith and theology and spirituality from the deep Lutheran conviction that faith itself is not something we generate and offer to God, but it is a gift of God, the Holy Spirit at work in us, which affixes us and attaches us to the gospel. So anyway, we have a really great conversation. I think you will enjoy it as we talk especially about my novel, A Tumbling Down. Links to that in the show notes. I hope you will want to read it after hearing this conversation conversation about it. And I also hope you will want to subscribe to Outside Ourselves. And I should mention, it is one of many, many podcasts in the 1517 network. Great stuff there. Uh, Just have a look over there and see all that they've got to offer. I'm sure you will find more than one that will delight you. So without further ado, here are me and Kelsey on Outside Ourselves. Welcome to Outside Ourselves, a podcast featuring conversations that remind us faith isn't something we do, it's something we receive. I'm Kelsey Clumbera. Outside Ourselves is a part of the 1517 Podcast Network. To learn more about all of our podcasts and all of our shows, please go to 1517.org forward slash podcasts. This week, I'm talking with pastor, theologian, and fiction writer, Sarah Hinlicky wilson I met Sarah for the first time back in April at the Mockingbird Conference, and I can say without a doubt that she is a delight to listen to. She is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to theology, and she's an amazing writer. We talked today about Sarah's newest novel, A Tumbling Down, and while our conversation centers around some of the main themes in the book, Sarah pulls out some really comforting truths of theology. This is, as she uh, describes, a book of theology and fiction intertwined together. It's a beautiful story about a pastor and his family living in upstate New York and what happens not only in their day-to-day lives, but also what happens when they face a really, really terrible tragedy. Sarah reminds us, as we always say on Outside Ourselves, that faith is is not something we do. It's not something that we can think up. It's not something that we can feel our way to. Those are not the measurements by which we know that we have faith. Instead, faith is only and always a gift that comes to us from outside of ourselves, from Christ himself. So with that said, Here's this week's conversation. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited uh, to get to have this conversation. Me too. And I'm excited that we've actually met in person before having this conversation. I I know. That is actually was kind of like a, um off chance thing because you uh, people need to know that you are halfway around the world in Japan. That's where you're located. And so we were so, I was so lucky and so happy that I got to meet you at this year's Mockingbird Conference back in April. Um, And we've been emailing a little bit ever since. Um, But yeah, we got to spend some time during the conference together and hear each other speak, which was so fun. And now here we are over there. Here we are. Yeah. Real (laughs) friends. It's awesome. Well, um, can you, you are, a busy lady. You do so much stuff. I don't know how you do everything that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us what you do um, and kind of your your background as we get started. Sure. Well, you've already identified one of the reasons for my productivity, which is I live on the opposite side of the planet of most of the people I know. And most of my hangouts take take a place in this format of video chat. <laughs> so, yeah, there you uh, go. Yeah, I've lived in Tokyo for five years. We came for my husband, Andrew's work. He is a professor of church history at Japan Lutheran College and Theological Seminary. He learned Japanese to do the job. Um, oh, wow. I, I 
have not succeeded in learning Japanese. <laughs> so we'll just we'll just set that one aside quickly. Yeah. Um, but in in the process of our coming here, um, our our church sponsors on both sides asked if I would be willing to become the pastor of Tokyo Lutheran Church. I'd already been ordained, but hadn't served in the congregation for a long time. And I wasn't quite sure what I thought. But you know, when God calls, you say yes, or you end up in the belly of a whale. So I thought that... Um, <laughs> It was better to be a pastor than in the belly of a whale. So, uh, yeah, so I've been um, associate pastor at Tokyo Lutheran Church the five years we've been here. It's an absolutely wonderful community. I really loved being a, a part of that. But it is very part-time. Uh, there are not many Christians in Japan. It is not a place mm -hmm. of rapid growth by any means. And uh, people here tend to work way too much. So uh, that means I've had a lot of extra time to do other things. And one of the things that I've always wanted to do, part of my sense of calling from really the earliest age I can um, remember, is to be a writer. So I've started mm. in nonfiction essay writing when I was right out of college and did a lot of that. I eventually um, went to seminary, of course, and but I also got a PhD in systematic theology. So I've written a few theology books, a ton of articles. Um, but then when we we moved here, I was like, I've always wanted to publish fiction. I'd written a lot of fiction, a lot of bad fiction. That is a pro <laughs> tip to write good fiction. You have to start by writing bad fiction. It's just part <laughs> of the pain of it. Like everybody starts out a heretic and then they study theology and get better. So <laughs> similar <laughs> process there. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And uh, so and then, you know, on top of everything else, the pandemic struck. And although yeah. my church did not close nearly as long as everyone else's did, you know, just really restricted our already limited social life and opportunities. So I was like, well, now's the time. And um, so I I brought out a project that I'd started 15 years ago and put away because I was scared of. And I was like, oh, wow. OK, I don't know why, but this is the time to write this book that scares me. Okay. And I, I did. <laughs> and so, and, and I started my own little, um, uh, my own uh, imprint of uh, press because uh, for many reasons, among others, the desire for my own uh, editorial control over the kind of stuff I wanted to create. That is Thornbush Press. And so I've just been continuing to work on that and write both fiction and nonfiction for it ever since. That's awesome. And you've also published a few at least one other book from another author, right? That's right. Oh, you should totally have her on sometime. It's sealed yeah. by Kate Langston. She's also a Lutheran pastor, but she grew up Mormon. And it is her okay. story of growing up in that environment and the cost of growing up in yeah. a, a deeply legalistic um tradition and being um, surprised by the grace of Jesus Christ and um, among other things, discovering that faith and salvation were a gift that come from outside ourselves. To yeah. That's yeah, awesome. So definitely yeah. have her on. Okay. That's, uh, that's good. I'm going to have to get your, her info from you when we finish up here. Um, but I, I want to, I want to get to the book that you've most recently written that you, I think kind of mentioned, but um, I'm also interested in a little bit about how you got into theology in the first place. I think I've, I think I know you either told me when we met or I just knew that your dad is a pastor, right? So I'm curious if that's how, or if you kind of just <laughs> fell into it, what's the story there? Well, the thing is, the Reformation discovered that if you let clergy marry, they tend to beget more clergy. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> there is a way in which the pastor and theology tends to run in families. So yes, my yeah. dad, Paul Hinlicky, is a Lutheran pastor and also a theologian, has an even better claim on the title than I do, has published a ton of work. And he, he does like really hardcore stuff, uh, you know, excavating the entire Western intellectual tradition and um, as well as re-expressing it for our time and place. So he and I do actually a podcast of our own together called Queen of the oh, Sciences. Cool. We're in our fifth year. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Every other week we talk about some theological topic and we try to keep it pretty broad. Like we'll do books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, as well as theologians from all all periods of church history, as well as more topical oh, cool. ones. We try to be kind of evergreen. We do occasional stuff that like plugs into the, you know, concern of the moment, but we're, we both deeply um, feel that and believe that the church has not invested enough catechetical effort. We just chase yeah. after whatever we perceive the cultural war or crisis of the moment to be. And yes. yeah. as a result, never give good answers. So we're much more interested in building up the body with 
deep theological knowledge and then actually trusting people once they have deep catechetical knowledge to kind of work out the issues and respecting, you know, differences of opinion and freedom in that respect. Mm. So that's that's where that podcast comes from. And I should say that my dad's dad was also a pastor. So I am now the third generation. But I had no idea I would be interested in it when I was a kid. It seems inevitable now. But it wasn't until I got to college that I took my first theology course and it was like, oh, this is it. This is all I'm going to care about the rest of my life. How embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) How unoriginal. But there I was. So yeah. Yeah. But I've also kind of found my own sort of, of, you know, way to do it, place to do it. And part of that has been, I've just always been a big fiction reader and loved fiction. And on some level, I kind of need the theology and the fiction to interact with each other. And I think that's Hmm. partly because Human humans are too complicated to codify things. <laughs> when when theologians try yeah. to codify, especially the human response, it feels mm-hmm. so false, and then creates mm-hmm. this kind of new re- set of requirements. Like you have to experience this thing, or you have to pr- uh, progress through the steps of salvation in this order. And that's just not how people work. And right. things are rarely as you know as. Um, neat and tidy as theologians and um but also these kind of popular requirements are i think fiction is a much better medium to explore the very weird and complicated ways that people come to and depart from god and how god chases them down anyway and all these yeah that's so interesting i feel like my last um conversation we talked a lot about that about you know the difference between kind of approaching something head on which i would say in this case is kind of like the systemization of theology sometimes or going alongside people and allowing experience to um, inform you. And that doesn't mean that there's not that systemization can't be helpful, but that's really interesting that you found fiction to be that way for you to connect theology and, and give it kind of deeper meaning. Would you say that you kind of knew that early on, or is that something you've discovered as as you've developed as a theologian? I think it's something I've discovered as I've gone along, because mm. uh, for a long time, these were kind of parallel tracks in my life. Like, uh, ever since I basically learned to read and discovered books, I was like, I want to make those. That's so cool. Mm. And I've loved stories, you know, like many people do it and tried to tell them. And inevitably, my faith and my theological interests would infiltrate what I was writing. And, yeah. you know, as I started to do, you know, my initial market research back in the day, I sort of like, I think my books are not Christian enough for Christian publishers and too Christian for non-Christian publishers. Mm. And I don't know. Okay. But well, you know, nobody is pounding down your door asking a new writer to publish their stuff anyway. And then I discovered this passion for theology as a, as my, you know, primary intellectual interest. So they, yeah. they just kind of ran parallel course a long time. Mm. And I think it's really once I realized that I could create my own publishing concern. And there's just been amazing opportunities in the past 10 years, as all podcasters know, right. to yeah. have a different media forms and reach people in different ways. And then I was like, oh, I, I see now what I can do is find the people who need good fiction and good theology at the same time. <laughs> and yeah. and I can I can find those people and connect with them instead of trying to please some sort of, you know, a marketing survey from Penguin or Random House or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, whatever it may be. Yeah, well, and I think that your your novel, A Tumbling Down, which is really what we're talking a lot about today, certainly does that. I loved it. I thought it was so great. And I, you know, I think the the one of the main things that hit me is that it's this story of this pastor and his family as they're going through normal life and then through some pretty intense suffering and and tragedy. Um, And so you get this picture of them that's in some way like mundane, but it's also very intimate and detailed. And I think that is so, you you brought so much of a human element to the, uh, the ministry and to the life of a pastor, which I don't feel like is really seen very much in popular culture. I feel like usually when you see the story of a pastor, the character of a pastor in like a book or 
on TV. They're very one-dimensional. They usually um, they they usually are irrational, like, and they <laughs> they often have no doubts whatsoever. They're like certain about what they believe, and um, and then usually that belief is a little bit off too. But um, what made you want to bring this? story of this pastor to people was it was it kind of to counteract what you had seen or was is there other stuff going on well as you might imagine for someone who is a pastor and a pastor's kid and a pastor's grandkid <laughs> and a theologian there's a lot of stuff going on here so i'll try yes. to tease out some of the elements yeah. so um one of them was just these the 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 father donald and the oldest daughter kitty just kind of walked into my imagination and hmm took possession. And um, I know this sounds weird, but I didn't name them. They named themselves. I got to name most of the other characters, but they just showed up. And um, so so part of it was just that these are two people who want their story to be told. Um, but then as I was beginning to you know, think about it more seriously and develop the story out of it, um, I had exactly the, what, the reaction you stated, which is that so much of at least American fiction and like TV and movies about pastors' families is either super sentimentalized and absolute certainty and everything is tied up with a bow, which mm. is not like anyone's life, much less like a pastor's life. <laughs> well, a pastor, yeah. yeah. And then on the other, or it's the pastor is a hypocrite and there's some terrible scandal hidden inside and that cracks yeah. open. And, you know, there's the affair, the embezzlements, the horrible children who, you know, want nothing to do, you know, like all like right. the over the top drama. And so I felt on one level, just giving a more like humane portrait, like you say, uh, of, of what it's like to be inside of a pastor's family from someone who knows. Um, so for example, I'm going to, I'm going to say something a little risky here. I loved Marilyn <clears throat> Robinson's book, Gilead, which mm. is a first person narrative of a pastor. It's a gorgeous book. It's deeply theological. It's lyrical, but it did not mm -hmm. feel to me at all. Like someone who was a pastor or who had ever lived in a pastor's family wrote that book. Mm. It was mm. even for all of its, its nuance and complexity, it was still somehow an idealized outsider's portrait. That's okay. Mm. You can write that kind of book. But the kind of book I yeah. wanted to write was much more the texture of what it feels like on the inside. But then mm. another element I wanted to bring to it was um, also when things go wrong in church, the pastor is always blamed by outsiders. And often that is the case. I do not in any way want to deny terrible things that clergy do. And I firmly believe in a double standard because people with religious power and authority should be held to a higher standard. Right. And yeah. their mistakes are so much more damaging than ordinary Christians' mistakes. Granting mm -hmm. that, I didn't see anyone telling the story of what happens when a person or a faction in the congregation goes after the pastor and tries to take him out. And that happens mm. too. I have no idea which one happens more often, but uh, every single pastor I talked to about this book who, who read it, uh, and there have been a lot by now, have just like, this hits so close to home. They've been through some version of it, but maybe not as bad as in my book, maybe a lot worse than what happens in my book. Um, Everybody connects who who is in a who is in a pastoral family knows the story, and I just didn't yeah. see anyone telling it, and also telling that it can be extremely subtle, extremely hard to perceive from the outside what's going on, um, mm. in a very you know diabolical kind of way that is yeah. very easy for other people to misinterpret without knowing what's on the inside. And it's not the mm. kind of thing that ultimately can be very well adjudicated even by the people who are supposed to be adjudicating these things or even people very close to the situation. So that was part of it. I, I wanted to explore this side, both the, the more realistic portrait of the pastor's family, but in a sympathetic light, and also mm -hmm. this story of congregational conflict that I just didn't see yeah. getting told at all. That is such a huge theme of the of the book is this idea of church conflict um and you know i i think anyone who's been a part of a church can understand a little bit of what that feels like because it happens all the time like you're saying and it happens in ways that can be really small um but for some reason it seems like with at least in my experience and and even you know talking to friends and stuff it feels like church conflict even if it's like those small slights can really stick with us why do you think that is like what is it about church conflict that can just hurt 
and cut so, so deeply, no matter what the case is. If it's, you know, like in the book where there's something, it's very subtle, but it's big going on, or it's just like these small things that keep happening to people. Yeah. Well, I think one thing is that the church is an extremely risky proposition because it's saying, you know, all sinners welcome. <laughs> yeah. And we've discovered that if you restrict the church to the body of the saints, well, you're going to have a super tiny church and they're going to fight with each other too. So that doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> but then in principle, you fling open the doors to everybody, no matter what stage of, you know, presumably some level of faith. Um, though, mm. I mean, honestly, being a pastor in Japan, people show up. I have no, they're not baptized. They don't want to become Christians. I have no idea what brings them there week after week. So, but you know, if the doors are open, um, people are going to come in and then, you know, mm. baptize people, people of faith, they're still sinners too. And right. they bring all sorts of other stuff with them. So on, on some level, um, I think there's just this disconnect between we think church is supposed to be the body of the the sanctified who are committed and who are trying yeah. to do the right thing. And of course we should be, but mm -hmm. we also are a body of sinners and we are on principle. And that means people are going to come in who are not well put together and who have unresolved issues with their parents or drinking problems or uh, just a nasty personality or, you know, <laughs> whatever it's going to be. And I don't think we, we, on some level, I think we probably don't teach clearly enough about how risky this proposition is and how much it takes to make it keep working. Um, mm. This also means, though, I mean, that's that's within the ordinary realm of things. Churches also attract predators because um, nice Christians are an easy mark. And so mm. there also has to be a kind of um, pastoral authority involved that is willing to call BS when they see it, to not be naive and um, to exert the necessary discipline. That is really hard in a totally free society where, as I think is appropriate, the church state connection has been totally severed. But mm. uh, in a, a very litigious society like American society and the ability of anyone to walk away for any reason you know, a predator can just go from one place to another. I have seen that happen in previous congregations I've been a part of. And hmm. uh, so what do you do? Uh, how do you protect the flock? So there's so much about church that is such an insanely risky proposition. And yeah. um, and I don't think not, a, not enough talk and not enough protection. I don't think we should stop taking the risk, but I think we probably could all use some growing up and to admit that it's it's a risk. I'd say the other mm. thing maybe of more an internal critique would be that it is so easy for church not to be about the gospel because there are so many needs and so many good things to be doing. And I agree, there's tons of urgent things to do in the world. But the one thing that the church does that nobody else does is proclaim the gospel and draw people mm. to the Holy Trinity. And um, it's very hard to continually say, no, this is the most important thing. Our worshiping yeah. on Sunday, which appears to accomplish absolutely nothing, and we can't even tell if it's improving any of us morally, <laughs> that is the most important thing for us to do. And I think it's just very hard to continually call back to that. But if if uh, pastors and other leaders and churches are not relentless and diligent in saying, no, we are here for the gospel above all else, and that judges everything else we do, then other values start to creep in, other competitions, other other priorities, yeah. and a, a lot of um, conflict will come out of that. Or when you try to make the gospel the center and people don't like having other priorities displaced, that will also cause conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there that the gospel has to be central. The proclamation of the gospel has to be central and that that is a very different thing than the proclamation of, of law. Um, which is very, it, it's confused everywhere. You, you know, I think we see it all the time in American churches. Um, it's, it's a pretty common thing to get those, those things, um, confused. And yeah, I think your, your thoughts on talking about the risk of churches is also important. And that I think comes with us just admitting that we're sinners. That's like a, a good you know, first step. But what would you say to people who are maybe in some sort of church conflict right now? I think the book obviously offers a lot of wisdom and it's in this, you know, it's in a, a fiction setting. So it's, it's nice because it's not like you're giving 10 steps to 
uh, resolving <laughs> church conflict. And I don't want to put you on the spot to do that here. But what kind of encouragement, if any, would you give to people who find themselves in in that place where um, things are tough and people are not getting along, but they feel, you know, they love their church and they love their community? Yeah. I take comfort from first Peter, which says that the devil is a prowling lion looking for people to devour. And I, I think sometimes it helps to just like step back and say, because we are a congregation, the devil is particularly interested in destroying us and, hmm. you know, and to pray, God, do not let the devil exploit me, <laughs> you know, at least start there and to pray for the deliverance of those who are being exploited. I know that sounds really yeah. over the top, but I think we've all been in situations where it's like, you know, th this is diabolical. I, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't spend too much time on it. Cause we become what we look at too long. So look more at Christ and at the devil, but you at least need to know that the devil is there. That's one thing. Mm. Um, I think another thing is that nothing ever happens as fast as we want it to. And patience is, is really the virtue of virtues. I know we should say love is the virtue of virtues. Okay. But I think in this <laughs> life, patience is the form that love takes most of the time is, yeah. is learning to wait it out. People do not convert or become sanctified on our timelines. They on mm -hmm. God and God has weird ideas about how long things should take. So we just have to have to let that be there. Um, you know, for all of us taking a self-assessment is, has the gospel been the priority and how I have approached church, whether I am a pastor or a lay person, um, that is a, a challenging thing. Uh, and, you know, are you really letting God handle it? Because sometimes things are just intractable and some things only God can fix. And sometimes they are not going to be fixed. You know, that there are congregations I've seen fractured beyond repair. Yeah. And uh, I think... One more thought is just that yeah. we're dealing with a lot of stuff that doesn't come from inside the congregation. It's the wrong kind of outside ourselves, right? <laughs> it's, right. It's, the pandemic yeah. was not something anybody asked for and all the ways people would go to war with each other over that. The polarization of American politics, um, you know, financial upsets, those kind of things. I mean, nobody asked for those. Um, so trying to find some, some measure of distance between, okay, we're all super stressed out and angry right now, but you know, mm. we didn't bring this in here. This got inflicted on us. Just creating mm. some distance sometimes can help create the necessary patience to get through to the next, you know, next moment where a little bit of grace comes, comes back in. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all really helpful. I think one thing that struck me, I actually found kind of refreshing is that the villains in the book are actually described as um people who are trying to be good like they're perhaps more than anyone else really trying to be righteous in the sense that you know they're trying to earn it but like they they think that they're doing um good and i think that that's maybe also helpful for for us sometimes to trying to think the best of of people in the sense that like maybe they they are actually doing bad but they I think if we can think of it in terms of they think they're doing good, it can be um, helpful in our approach. Have you found that to be true in conflict? If we can kind of, I don't know if it's thinking the best of people or just realizing like their intentions are maybe not as evil as we would assume they might be. Kelsey, you have laid your finger on why I am a Lutheran fiction writer, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm not really interested in super villains. Uh, you know, yeah. there are sociopaths and psychopaths. I think they're kind of boring. Even in The Lord mm. of the Rings, Sauron is the most boring character. <laughs> you know, Saruman is far more interesting, right? Boromir is right. interesting. Yeah. But Sauron, like, who cares? Like, okay, you know, he's just going to be defeated in the end. So what? So yeah. I think, yeah, it's exactly, I mean, what fascinates me is... And again, I'm sure this has a lot to do with being a Lutheran, but how hard it is to be good. And mm. when you want to be good and pursue the good, even if you start out for the right reasons, how easily that takes over. And so yeah. like exactly these, these characters, and they're not the only ones in the book who want so badly to do the right thing that they are incapable of taking correction. They're incapable of seeing that their good intentions were maybe not as good as they thought, but the outcomes are certainly not. And right. how hard is that for any of us? I mean, you and I do what we do because we think it's good. We are trying to pursue the good. 
the opening sentence of Aristotle's ethics are all men by nature pursue the good. You know, seriously, you have to be like such a extreme on the spectrum of criminality to actively pursue evil. So the human right. condition is not choosing good over evil. It's actually having any accurate perception of the good at all. And, you know, mm. this is also Bonhoeffer's critique when he, he's talking about the creation story and say, you know, the second you start distinguishing between good and evil, you're looking at them and not at God. Well, hmm. we're past the fall. We, we don't have the option not to talk about good and evil, but it's so hard to talk about good. It's so hard to be good, even when you when that is what you want more than anything else. And then how do you how do you cope? How, how can you see yourself when your desire to be good is exactly what is causing you to be evil? This yeah. is like to me the core dilemma of the soul <laughs> before right. the resurrection from the dead. Right. Yeah. That is that is so true um i and like you mentioned that's the case for several characters in the book it also kind of i think gets to pastor donald's um this this ongoing struggle that he has with i want to talk a little bit more about him because he has this ongoing struggle in the book with doubt but also the way he was raised which correct me if I'm wrong, is a little bit more, I think you say he he came out of like a, or his family was in the holiness movement. So a little bit more fundamental. Um, and then he becomes this Lutheran pastor and he's wrestling with this idea of the choice of God versus his choice to follow God. Can you, is, I, I hope I'm setting it up correctly. Can you talk us through a little bit more of his character and kind of that struggle and maybe how that's connected to this idea of um, being good, trying to be good, and yet failing all the time in life? Like, what are we supposed to make of that as as Christians? Right. So I, you know, I have a number of different trajectories of faith in this story. And so Donald's is a particular one. I think it will be familiar to a lot of Americans, someone who comes out of a more, what we would now call fundamentalist background. He's from a very small holiness sect um, that was just constantly pushing your choice, your discipleship, your commitment to God. And um, he's haunted by the memory of his grandfather, a revivalist preacher. And, um, but he, Donald for himself can't he can't make it work. And so one day he um, is recalling the story of John Wesley's conversion when his heart was strangely warmed. Um, Wesley is behind the holiness movement as well, but more famous for being behind the Methodists. And but it turns out Wesley's conversion did not come from reading scripture. It came from reading Luther and it came spe specifically from reading Luther's preface to the Romans. And I did not Wesley know that. Is that is, sorry to cut you off? Is that really a fact because I did not know that till I read this. That is absolutely true. You can yes, That's crazy. you can go to my uh, my palimpsest guide for tumbling down. It's on the Thornbush Press site and uh, and it has all kind of the background details too. But yes, okay. Wesley converted because of Luther. And so, um, so anyway, so in this in the, the backstory, Donald looks up, well what's this preface to the Romans? And you know, of course it's Luther saying God does it. God does it all. God does it 100%. Even your faith is a gift of God. Mm -hmm. And um, and he comes across this one line where Luther says, we cannot make our own faith. We cannot make hmm. ourselves believe. And this is exactly what Donald has been told all his life. Of course, you make yourself believe. That's your that's your job. That's your lifelong struggle as a Christian is to make yourself believe. And then from there, that's how he discovers Luther ends up becoming a Lutheran pastor. But just because he does that doesn't mean all the questions go away. And then he's immediately flung into questions about evolution and the historical process of writing the Bible down and different sources and what's authentic and what's not. And so kind of all those that baggage that comes along with coming out of this more um, <clears throat> biblicist tradition yeah. and um so so he's always wrestling with that um but then the kind of twist in the story i won't give too much away is this yeah. tragedy uh, strikes the family and it is in the wake of the tragedy that donald suddenly discovers he now has perfect certainty about god's existence that all of his doubts are gone but not for a good reason there's no comfort or joy in it it's because of yeah. what happened and the way it happened that he is like well there must be a god but god is not loving i don't like god i don't want anything to do with god but here i am i'm a pastor and i can't stop and um 
And so how he has to come to terms with certainty, not being this beautiful, desirable thing in, in the end. But of course, that's not the, the last move. And, and the final move that he has to go to is kind of reclaiming this, what he needs to know about himself, about his own goodness, about his own faith. But it only comes through this tremendous process of loss and suffering and dealing with this tragedy. Yeah, he ends up, um, each of your main characters specifically in the 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 core family um kind of have like you said a different journey and end up in in kind of different places with faith because of this tragedy and this is something i feel like i talk frequently about on this show but just the just the fact that like suffering and tragedy can hit people um in different ways it can affect us in different ways we know that's true. We know that's true as Christians. What is, is there something central or consistent, would you say, to the way that um, Christians you've seen or even you yourself have experienced suffering or tragedy? Like what kind of holds us mm -hmm. together even when we are in these, these frayed places of whether it's doubt or this kind of um, cold certainty that you describe Donald being, what what is is there something that holds us, us together? Yeah, well, God holds us together. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the big answer, and right. I, it's really hard to trust in God, and it's tr hard to trust in God to to pull you together when you're falling apart. Yeah. I think to, to get in, I mean, suffering. I mean, this is like everyone's ultimate religious question, right? Yeah, so I think right. at least to, to preface it, uh, Simone Weil, the, the 20th century French author, she had, I think, a really important distinction between suffering and affliction. And for her, mm. the different, this is a Lutheran-like anfechtung uh, type of uh, affliction. What she means is there's a kind of suffering that only grinds someone down and dehumanizes them. And mm. it doesn't make them better. And it isn't something that you ultimately can even have any much in the way of moral responsibility for making good of, uh, you know, hmm. if you have been, uh, if you're a young woman who's been trafficked and is abused constantly, um, that yeah. for the, the people who can come out of that and make something of it, God bless them. I mean, God has blessed them obviously, but I would yeah. never lay on someone like, well, this suffering is an opportunity for you to grow. And you know, right. no, this is yeah. just, but so that is a real category. And I think that that is something that should be dealt with separately. But everybody, no matter who you are, suffers and suffers mm. in a way that there is some sort of, I don't know. Yeah. Again, this is why I like fiction better than than analyzing it philosophically or theologically, because I don't want to say choice. I don't want to say agency. There's something of that, clearly. But there's also mm. stuff that a lot of stuff that is not about that. Um, having a good mentor in suffering mm. is makes a huge difference. And that's not necessarily something you have any any control over, um, mm. though. I, I guess the way I've been thinking about it lately is is that since everyone is going to feel pain, um, maybe life should be about choosing to lean into the right kind of pain. You know, there's mm. the pain of. You know, like, well, I, we were just beforehand, I was talking, you know, my son is a year away from finishing high school. And, you know, that's a changed relationship from where we were when he was a little guy. And, right. you know, the pain that, you know, empty nester parents go through letting their kids go and become adults. And we know how big and terrifying and dangerous the world is. And, you know, to continue to protect our, you know, young adult children as if they were still toddlers is wrong. So, mm. but it's a real pain. But that's the right kind of pain. I could also have a painful relationship by, you know, suffocating him and controlling him. You know, that would mm. also be pain. In this case, it's choosing the right kind of pain, the pain of, you know, entrusting your adult child to God and seeing them move on. Or, mm. you know, we were talking about congregational life. Um, you know, if you have... Um, a genuinely exploitative pastor who's doing genuinely evil things, um, maybe the right thing to do is to get out, um, you know, and mm. the pain of saying goodbye is the right kind of pain or the pain of, of calling that person to account and suffering the blowback, you know, as opposed to the pain of pretending like things are okay and covering mm. up for the evildoer again and again, yeah. both are going to hurt like heck, but yeah. um I feel like a lot of popular advice is about avoiding pain or or 
like I think the kind of the renewed interest in stoicism. I mean, I think it's partly an over a, a correction to like um, the valorization of melodrama, which is definitely a thing right. in American culture yeah. too. But like mm-hmm. the Christian ideal is not stoicism. It's not. We, our goal is not to stop feeling pain. But I, right. I do think there's. It, for me, it's more useful to talk about what kind of pain is worth feeling because it's connected to true things and right things and mm. the cost that that is good to bear as opposed to costs that grind you down or grind other people down or don't cause you to grow but stunt you. Um, yeah. That's that's the closest I can get theoretically. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. And I was going to ask, you know, how do you know which um, – which pain (laughs) is the right pain sometimes. But I think you, you helped out there by saying um, the pain that's connected to good things. And, you know, we see that in God's word, like he, he reveals that to us. Um, Is there, are there other instances where you could see that being difficult to kind of choose? Or do you think it's, it's pretty clear most of the time? Oh no, I don't think it's it's clear very often at all. <laughs> and, okay. and and this connects back to, to the whole problem of how do you know the good you're pursuing is actually good? Maybe it's not yeah. good. So mm. I mean in this respect, I think this is why um we keep on teaching the law, not as the the means to salvation. It is not. It is never that. Right. But the law as a truth teller is extremely yes. important. And I think we cannot assume people just know you know, the 10 commandments or right. basically what a Christian vision of the good is, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm a hardcore gospel preacher, just constantly, you know, God, 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 gospel, gospel, gospel. Right. But yes, there is a real Christian way to live the way that Jesus taught the way that Paul describes in his epistles and Peter and his, you know, that I, I try for, and you know, I'm obviously not saved by it, but, but there is an objective difference between that and living by some other code. So that's part of it. But then obviously you, not obviously, it should be obvious. You have to have a community. You have to have other believers Mm. that you could talk through these things with, because sometimes it's really hard to tell what's going on. And the more people you have that you trust, who you know are immersed in, first of all, the gospel, <laughs> and then striving to live as much as is given to us, you know, according to the, the ethic um, that the, the Bible gives us, then I think we can, you know, have at least a better shot at dealing with the tough cases yeah. and the cases where it is not clear right. how to be good. Well, and that, and you know, that also, I love that phrase, the law is a truth teller, um, because that connection to reality allows us to um, it gives us a compass so that, you know, hopefully we are choosing correctly in the, in the horizontal. And when we're not, we repent, we go back to what we know is true of the the gospel. We hear that word again, and we're, we're brought back to the word of forgiveness. And so, yeah, you're so right that both, both of those words of law and gospel are, are needed. And it is, it is sometimes easy. I think you know, my experience is, is, um, coming into this tradition and, and having been beaten down by the law. And so feeling that Mm. gospel, um, the, the refreshing word of the, the gospel, you can kind of become, I think, a fire hose of only gospel, which is funny (laughs) because it kind of becomes a law unto itself where you're like, no law, only gospel. But you do at some point, I think, it kind of evens out for people where you see that both words are are so valuable to the way that we live, the way that we are neighbors, and then so obviously the way we're viewing ourselves and those around us, but then of course our the, our relationship with um, with God as well. You know, we've talked some about this relationship between doubt and God's promises, or we've at least kind of danced around it. Um, and that is something there's, there's a tension there, I think throughout the book for, for many of the characters, what would you, I'm, I'm curious where you have kind of landed on that tension throughout your own ministry and where you've, you've landed personally with, with that, that Mm -hmm. tension. Yeah. So for my, in my own biography, I have never been 
tormented by either legalistic religion or by, you know, serious anguish over questions like how long ago creation happened, whether evolution is the way it happens, about the authorship of the Bible. You know, when I started studying theology, you know, I was like, oh, really? Okay. You know, and, you know, it took a little bit of of processing. I've, you know, I have to think through, you know, is the resurrection of Jesus actually plausible? You know, does it, does it seem like, um, at least the the account of the New Testament is intelligible. So yeah, I've I've worked through those kind of questions, but I've I've never I think because my the the Lutheran piety I was formed by on some level I always knew that it wasn't about producing the correct mental state. And I think hmm. that a lot of um American Protestants, especially across the spectrum, they're either in the think the right thoughts or feel the right feelings. Yes. Um, implicit doctrine of salvation. <laughs> right. And it kind of depends on whether you're on a more intellectualist or a revivalist tradition, which those are. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know, maybe I've just been okay with realizing that I am a Roman seven kind of person. I am a divided <laughs> self. I cannot make all the parts of me line up. So trying to produce the mental st- correct mental state was just a no go right from the start. Mm. So in that respect, there's only been one time in my life I had a really painful extended period of doubt. It was in graduate school. I have a hard time reconstructing exactly what it was. I think I finally had to say, well, what if everything about Christianity and about the religious longings of the heart could be accounted for by other means? Mm. Uh, You know, and Mm. I, I, I think I had to say for myself, yes, I think you could probably account for everything else by purely, you know, within the system of the universe, nature, biology. Um, And then kind of be like, does that mean that is the explanation? It's like, actually, Mm. there's no logical. I mean, it could be it could be an Occam's razor explanation, but it didn't it didn't convince me in the end. And, um, you know, some other stuff happened probably to do with graduate school itself. <laughs> so, um, so Donald's particular struggles ha- have never been my own, but I think there, there is genuine value in being able to, it sounds ridiculous to outsource your faith. Like literally, mm. like I believe, but I don't spend a lot of time looking at my belief itself. I think, mm. um, if I ask the question, I can sort of like go up to 30,000 feet and look down and say, um, I cannot imagine what else would motivate me to move to the other side of the planet and my entire life earn an inadequate salary unless I really <laughs> believed. <laughs> you know? And yeah. to write in a, in a non-existent genre that is never going to be a bestseller. Okay. You know, like <laughs> I, if I have to ask the question, that's, that's the way I look for answers. Um, but I mean, I, the, the simple truth is this, it's just so integral to who I am. I can't even imagine myself apart from it. I am not myself apart from it. And, um, you know, I keep going to church. I love preaching. I love distributing the Lord's Supper to my faithful flock every Sunday. Um, hymns make me cry. You know, at, at some point, it's just like, it's not a useful question. And I, I again, hmm. I'm speaking to people who have been immersed in religion and feel that they can't perform. And uh, I'm not even saying that, you know, whoever you are out there listening to this, you you don't have to cry when you hear hymns. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's just like, there's just so much self-examination and um, yes. there's just more interesting things to do as Christians, you know, <laughs> you get I'm I'm sorry, like I'm I'm branding and and advertising for your podcast constantly, but get outside yourself. And that's what Luther (laughs) said is like, if you're feeling down or doubtful, hang out with friends, drink beer and make music. Like what better cure is there for anything Mm -hmm. than friends, beer and music? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that's, I think that's great advice. I'm thinking of the character in the book, um, Carmichael, who's the pastor's wife. Like, I feel like she's such a good example of this because she kind of has her her moment of doubt, which hits her later in life. Um, but then she just continues on, and that's kind of I think how some also some other characters in like Kitty. It's just like no, like you're just gonna continue on. You're gonna live life. And you're so right. This this self examination, which is not only rampant in the church in America, but in just American culture in general, um, can be so so devastating because uh, it leaves you. 
it doesn't leave you with any real answers and it doesn't help you progress. Like I think for some reason we think that turning in is going to get us somewhere, but like even just the mental picture of turning in, like that doesn't, (laughs) if you're even just considering that, like it doesn't, you're not progressing. You're just stuck within yourself, navel gazing as we so often say. So I think that's Well, you know, like for people who like have zero self-knowledge, like who really cannot understand why they feel the way they do, why they do. Yes, for heaven's sake, go to a therapist or, you know, talk (laughs) to a friend who will say, look, Bob, let me tell you, you know how your mother was? That's why you're acting this way now. You know, like, sure. (laughs) Right. You you need to do that. That's part of growing up. But at some point Mm -hmm. it goes stale, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and at some point you, I I think actually this is one of the, uh, the other like huge human questions is at what point is knowledge enough? Like on one level, it's never enough. But at some point also like more knowledge doesn't help. And so Mm. like I can endlessly spiral into myself and try to figure out every single thing inside of me, but it actually isn't the the more self-knowledge at some point, you know, it has an expiration date. And at that point, you know, for, and I think those are probably the kind of people who are more likely to listen to this podcast. So we're talking to you, buddy, get out there, (laughs) pick up a guitar get a brew and have some friends over in person. This video thing does not work. You got to be like body to body in person. You know, that's, that's the kind of person who really needs to be delivered from this obsessive self-knowledge. And, you know, you mentioned, so Carmichael, the pastor's wife, you know, like Mm -hmm. she has, because of the, you know, what happens in the family, she loses faith for the first time and she's an adult convert. It's always been easy for her, but the way it comes back is totally at an, a weird angle, you know, what, again, I won't give it away, but, but she suddenly discovers that she believes again, not because she was trying to, and at for a reason that is not directly like, okay, I believe and feel that Jesus Christ is my savior, (laughs) but more that something has happened to bring her back alongside of it. And she was like, okay, I can go forward. And I realize I'm never going to believe the way I used to. I'm grateful Mm. for those early flush in love days when it was new and exciting and easy. Those are behind me, but you know, she, she's swept up to go to wherever the next place needs to be. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that a lot of times American Christianity is either kind of this like super intellectual approach or this very emotional approach. And this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's something I wanted to get to you when you spoke at Mockingbird, one of your talk was so great. People need to listen to it. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. But one of your main points um, was that Christians, saints are emotional. And that really struck me because I feel like when we talk about emotions as Christians, we either have this like super emotional approach, as you mentioned, or perhaps more in the in you know a liturgical or lutheran setting we might be very wary of emotions and try to um <laughs> try to try to act as if they're all bad um and your the way that you talked about them i was so refreshing to me because you didn't place them in either camp like it was a it was the way that you 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 described them was a completely new um, to me or refreshing way to hear about them. So I'm wondering if, and I think it comes through in your your book too and in your your writing, if you could kind of just talk a little bit about um, that and how you view sainthood as an emotional experience. Yeah, you know, more people have asked me about that from that talk than anything else. So it really obviously struck a deep chord. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I have not really found a big theme of this uh, from Luther, except so this is all drawn from his Genesis lectures, which are over the last 10 years of his life. And I kind of picked out of them to assemble them for for this talk. But um, what's interesting about Luther talking about Genesis is that he has entire human lifespans doing normal human things. So the New Testament, by (laughs) definition, is once only, like the Bible itself says that, 
Christ suffered once for all, <laughs> but mm. he did not live a normal life. He did not get married. Sorry, Da Vinci Code. Didn't have children. <laughs> didn't live to old age. We have no idea what his disciples did outside of a few, you know, key scenes or whatever. But Genesis tells us, you know, birth to death and everything in between and all the things that go wrong and go right um, along the way. And so Luther takes the occasion as he talks through the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis to talk also about their emotional life and what is astounding. I mean, it fits with what we know of Luther, who is obviously a deeply passionate person, but it's the only place I've ever yeah. uh, seen him reflect directly on the fact that to be a Christian is not to be a stoic, is not to be detached, but to feel things deeply. And he even says mm. in this respect, grace does perfect nature. He doesn't mean it in the scholastic way for those of you out there who are having a panic attack. Don't worry. That's not what he means. <laughs> what he means is that God made us human, humans have emotion. So to be deeply immersed in the spirit of God is to feel human emotions even more deeply than ever. Mm. And that is love and that is grief and that is zeal and that is anger. Um, and he does not endorse melodrama as we mentioned earlier or hysteria or right. just like giving full reign. He says, we do learn to curb the negative emotions or the excessive emotions. Um, you know, so you, you have to be, so as a, a, a leader, you have to be zealous for the word of God and you need to exercise discipline, but you are not to be wrathful. You are not to lose control and your anger. That's not okay. But feeling things deeply right. is not okay. It's good. It's human. And beyond that, it's even saintly. And um, yeah, mm. that's a really powerful thing because I think, again, maybe this is like the super deep, like um, Greco-Roman tradition and Western civilization. But I think when people talk about being spiritual or wanting to be spiritual, what they really mean is I don't want to hurt so much. <laughs> and yeah. I think Luther would say, sorry, I mean, that's maybe where I got the idea that the issue is having the right kind of pain, not having no pain. And right. you know, yeah. if you, if you believe deeply, you will feel deeply. I, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. ideally love will be the strongest one, but there are a lot of other emotions and those are going to be strong in you too. And um, so taking those up, not in the sense of like performing them or trying to cultivate them in this weird anxious bench kind of way, but just right. like you are human, you will have emotions. In fact, we all know that if you are not having emotions, something is wrong and you probably need to see a doctor or, you know, yes. a counselor or something. Yeah. You know? yeah. You need yeah. to acknowledge them. And it's not in a way that they some somehow become a, a benchmark or a measurement for where you are with God, which is where I think it goes south when people become, when emotionalism takes over. But um, yeah. yeah, this idea that you can, you can feel deeply, you can feel good things deeply. Cause I think that's what mm. unfortunately gets thrown out of, um, gets thrown out when we're like, emotions are bad is, you know, joy and love and, and happiness and peace. All of those get thrown out too. And that's, that's a terrible yeah. place to be. So yeah, um, I yeah, think that yeah. that's really helpful for, it was very helpful for me at least. That's great. I'm so glad. And like yeah. you said, I, I've been surprised at the strength of the reaction, the emotions that that, that elicited from, from people who heard it. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, I think I would highly encourage everyone to go and listen to the entire talk because it was so good. And one of my favorites from, um, the conference, but I want to wrap up here tonight. Um, is there anything that anything else that you're working on that you want to let people know about what we should we be looking um, forward to seeing from you in the future? Well, actually, Kelsey, I have to give you some credit because I've been really wanting to talk more about my novel, and I'm so thrilled you were willing to make that the centerpiece oh, of this conversation. Yes. But it also made me think that um, I, I'm going to be a little bolder about claiming um, theological fiction as one of my, my vocations in life. So actually, in early July, I'm going to launch a new podcast um, Sarah okay. Hickey Wilson stories, and I'm going to podcast my stories. Um, they'll also be available in you know in book format and so forth. But I awesome. just realized, like I, I, I'm thinking of calling it um, for people who need good theology and good fiction at the same time, because that's who I am. Yeah. And maybe there are more people out there. And um, and I would just like to to share and like 
I don't know, like create the genre or, you know, uh, tap into people who are, I've read everything by C.S. Lewis and Madeline Lingle. Where do I go now? And yes. um, so, yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to try to, 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 to dive in deeper into this particular vocation. And um, yeah, so if, uh, if your listeners have enjoyed our conversation about this book, of course, you should read A Tumbling Down. But uh, yeah, hopefully yes. early July 2023, I will be launching this new theological fiction podcast as well, hopefully coming to you every week. Awesome. That's amazing. And that's going to be your original stories or are you going to be my, pulling yes, from other my sources? Own, my own work. Okay. Uh, no, at the moment it'll just be mine. I actually, because, well, because I've been writing for so long and what I do doesn't really, again, fit with Penguin Random House, but also yeah. not with Thomas Nelson. Uh, yeah. So I have this huge backlog. So I'll, I'll be doing some of the books I already have out there, but I'm also, I'm, I should say I'm working on a trilogy right now. I'm just starting okay. on the third volume. I'm not going to publish them until they're all done because they interlink somehow, but that will okay. be coming down the pike 2024, 2025. I, so again, yeah. I don't know how you do it all. I'm super impressed and we'll look forward to the new, the new podcast and to seeing the new um, trilogy whenever that comes out. So Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. I'm. This was such a delight. It's so good to talk with you again, and I'm excited for people to listen. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for inviting me on, and I'm, I'm really glad we got to know each other and can, can continue the conversation this way. Thanks so much for listening to Outside Ourselves. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave me a five-star review if you haven't done so already. It takes about two seconds to do. And you can do that on any of the podcasting apps that you use. Another great way to follow along with Outside Ourselves or to support the show is to listen and watch on YouTube. As of right now, we are a separate channel. We have our own channel separate from the rest of 1517 content. Um, you can subscribe by going to the show notes and clicking on subscribe to the show, the link to YouTube and then hitting that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you back here in a couple of weeks.